Baal is a deity of death and murder. He and his faith revel in the act of killing their targets. Hopefully you never hear Baal's name spoken from the dark areas of the world. I am Ben Dignan, and welcome once again to Religion in the Realms. Titles Ball is known by the following title, The Lord of Murder. An alias of Ball's is Nain Jushigampo. Ball goes by this name out in the Horlands of Eastern Faerun. Portfolio and Domains Ball's portfolios before the Time of Troubles was said to include assassination, murder, and death though in particular favoring sacrificial or violent death. That was until Sirik took the portfolio of death after killing Baal. Baal was reborn as of 1482 Dale Reckoning and likely has reclaimed his former portfolios. Baal's suggested domain for 5th edition is the Death Domain. Appearance and Manifestations In religious art, Ball can appear as a skull-faced human man with a muscular build with curved blades in place of where his hands norm- normally would be. At other times, he looks to be a bloody and mutilated corpse with a feral face. As a demigod, Ball's face is said to look like a skull with its skin removed, orbited by a halo of blood. He can change his form to that of a looming monster carrying a dagger that continuously drips blood. This monster is hairless, wears nothing save a loincloth, and is covered all in slash wounds. At all times, Ball carries a red handkerchief on his person. Ball had two known avatar forms. One was known as the Slayer. This particular avatar was the one he used in urban urban settings. His creature looked to be a walking male corpse with a wild face, sporting deep laceration on its skin. These wounds would drip black ichor that would suddenly disappear before striking any surface. Little or no sound could be heard from the Slayer, as it walks and speaks in a cold and quiet voice. The Slayer makes use of what seems to be an infinite number of bone daggers on its person. The other avatar was the Ravager, who Ball would place in rural and remote locations. The Ravager stands as a 30-foot-tall, fiendish-looking monster. The Ravager had a muscular form with long hair, beard, glowing eyes, and two curved horns protruding from its forehead. If you would like to see a couple images of the Ravager, look for the two various covers for the novels titled Darkwell by Douglas Niles. Ball has two chief manifestations. The first is a pair of skeletal hands that have the ability to hover and fly. These hands gesture, carry items, and or grow and shoot bone daggers from the fingertips. The second is a laughing flying skull trailed by teardrops of blood that looks much like Bill's holy symbol. Ball's will, favor, and disfavor can be communicated through the appearance of different creatures. These creatures include skeletal undead of all sorts, all manner of tentacle monsters like Grell, and the Harla of Fate. 
The Harla of Hate are believed to have been created by Ball, and Ball's will dictates which creatures serve as their prey. Abilities Given that Ball is no longer an intermediate deity, it is worth noting that these abilities he had at that power level may no longer apply or need to be reined in with his present position as a demigod. The Slayer Avatar was able to levitate and walk on air and conjure up to six bone daggers to each strike out twice in a given turn. These bone daggers were treated as a plus two magic weapon and dealt cold damage. Those killed by the bone daggers could then be raised as zombies by the Slayer. Or the Slayer could then make the corpse burst apart and cause those bones released from the inside of the corpse to be used as a form of a blade barrier made out of bone shards. Any wounds sustained by these bone daggers would immediately begin to wither. Wounds to the torso or head would cause greater damage to the victim, whereas wounds to the limbs would render them unusable. The Ravager had immense strength, capable of crushing stone in its hands. The Ravager attacks with its fists or gores its opponents with its large horns. It also regains some amount of hit points each round. Both the Slayer or Ravager avatar were able to animate any undead of their choosing. Lesser undead would obey the avatar indefinitely, whereas greater undead were bound to perform one task before becoming free-willed creatures. In the same vein, any non-divine undead creature could be reduced to dust through a simple touch by either avatar. Through either of Ball's previously described manifestations, he could speak aloud to those present or cast darkness within a 90-foot range. Ball was capable of awakening an urge to kill in up to 12 lawful evil creatures within 90 feet of his avatars or manifestations. If a creature was to fail their save against this command, they would immediately charge into attack the target Ball directed them to all the while moaning and sobbing uncontrollably as they did so. Personal History I won't retread the same material I talked about in the Bane episode where I touched on a lot of the early history of the Dead Three back when they were mortals. Instead, I will give a brief overview and touch on the relevant aspects of the story pertaining to Ball. If you want to hear these particulars broken down and talked about, refer back to the personal history section of the Bane episode. In the coalition that the Dead Three, known back then as the Dark Three, brought together to fight Marum of the Great Spear in negative 357 Dale Reckoning, were the Wizards of Bars, led by the very archwizard King, who both their group and kingdom were named after. After the Dead Three reportedly unleashed Tyrant Thraxus, the kingdom of Bars was brought to ruin by this creature. Bars the Archwizard never got a chance to defend his kingdom as the spellcaster, if the legends are true, was assassinated and betrayed by Ball. It is said that Ball and his other two companions were viewed as heroes in Bars before given their actions in defeating Marum. When the Dead Three brought Hass to heal and merged him with Hargut back in negative 350 Dale Reckoning, Ball first mortally wounded the elder doppelganger with a dagger to the back. What is important about this dagger is that it is described as a simple iron dagger that absorbed the life force of Hask, 
when plunged into Hask's heart. This dagger is not overtly stated to have been a Jothaman dagger, but I feel confident in saying that Baal obtained one for himself, just like Bane did before, killing Borm of the boiling, boiling Mud nine years earlier. At the end of the legend of Skull Bowling and Knuckle Bones, Ball had come third in the game of Knuckle Bones between his other two allies, Mercule and Bane. As an oversight, I forgot to mention in the last episode on Mercule that Mercule came in second place in the legend and chose Jurgle's portfolio of the dead. Ball was left with the portfolio of death, which was fitting given his mortal standing as an assassin. If the legends are to be believed, Ball thought that though he picked last, he came out the winner, as he could kill those who Bane wanted to rule over while slowing the tide of those who reached Mercule. Advancing far into the timeline, in 1345 Dale Reckoning, in a plot to try and claim the Moonshade Isles as his own, Ball first corrupted one of the Earth Mother's moon wells. This well became known as a Dark Well, and from it came Kazgoroth the Beast. Kazgoroth is a massive reptilian creature who would be ultimately killed by Robin and Tristan Kendrick. At the time, Kazgoroth was believed to have been an avatar manifested by Baal, but in actuality, Kazgoroth is an ancient primal spirit who has arisen over the centuries to challenge the balance of the moonshays looked over by the Earth Mother, who is an aspect of Shantia. The following year, Ball, aided by one of his clerics, attempted to unleash the Ravager, his avatar, upon the region. This cleric came to the Moonshays and found an unholy artifact, the heart of Kazgaroth, the only thing to remain of the creature after it was killed. Using the heart, this cleric animated an army of undead to attack the Murloc Vale region of the Moonshays. Robin Kendrick was kidnapped to offer up as a sacrifice in order to bring Kazgroth back to life. In the final confrontation with Tristan Kendrick, Ball's avatar, the Ravager, began to emerge forth into the prime material plane from a newly created dark well. Within the Ravager, Ball placed more of his essence than is typical for any other given avatar. Prince Tristan Kendrick would go on to slay the Ravager, severely weakening Ball for a significant amount of time and banishing his presence from the Moonshays. The events detailing Ball's machinations and plans are explained in several supplements, but told in greater detail in the Moonshay trilogy of novels by Douglas Niles. When the Time of Troubles came about after his two allies, Bane and Mercule, stole the Tablets of Fate in 1358 Dale Reckoning, Ball still had not fully recovered from the damage he sustained after the defeat of the Ravager. Rather than manifesting in a humanoid form on the Prime Material, much like the other deities, Ball instead became a Force. One described this form seemed much like an unseen spirit as it went about possessing mortals. These possessed mortals left a path of murder and destruction behind them before eventually being cut down. Ball then would merely have to possess the closest mortal and repeat this cycle all over again. Any body Ball possessed would gain an immense amount of strength and could easily shrug off blows that would otherwise mortally kill or wound any normal mortal. As was discussed in the Bane episode, 
Bane drew the power in from all the ball-worshipping assassins on Faerun as Bane made his way to Tantris to claim his half of the tablets. This only served to weaken Ball further after so many of his prime worshippers were killed down on Faerun. But Bane would end up dying in this fight with Torm. Mercule turned to Ball, and together they formed an alliance to reclaim the tablets themselves. Ball was able to kidnap the mortal Midnight, who would later become Mistra Reborn. Midnight at the time also held one half of the Tablets of Fate in her possession. The mortal Cyric would encounter Ball on Boreskir Bridge, and there wielding God's Bane, slew Ball. Ball's essence burst forth, some of it being absorbed by Cyric, and the remainder being dispersed over top the winding water down below the bridge. Since that day, the water downstream from the Boreskir Bridge to the Trollclaw Float Ford has been jet black in color and poisonous and or cursed depending on what supplement you go by. These waters were believed to have held remnants of Ball's power and personality, much like the Crown of Horn held remnants of Mercule or the Bane Liches held remnants of Bane. It would later be discovered that Ball knew that he would likely not survive the time of troubles given his weakened state. So instead, as he moved from possessed person to possessed person, he made sure that he slept with many people. In this way, the ball spawn conceived from his actions would be born after his death. What doesn't track for me is that in a lot of sources, it is said that Ball made sure to carry out this plan while down on the prime material during the time of troubles in 1358 Dale Reckoning. That's fine until other sources start claiming Ballspawn in powerful positions in society as adults start acting out in 1368 Dale Reckoning, only 10 years afterwards. So that doesn't make much sense to me, and this might be an oversight, unless the source is meant to say 1378 Dale Reckoning instead. Each child who was a Ballspawn contained within them a fraction of Ball's essence. Inherent to these children was a violent disposition, a disposition that would cause them to seek out one another and eventually kill one another. As each ball spawn was killed, the essence remaining within the other ball spawn would only get stronger and stronger. Finally, the last one to remain was served as the perfect conduit for ball to be reborn out of. Much like Bane's faith, the conversion from ball to the worship of Cyric was bloody. At first, former Ballists referred to this new entity they worshipped as Cyric Ball, or Cyric as Ball. This was done to make a point of to differentiate themselves from the former Bainites who simply referred to Cyric by his name. It was believed that Cyric Ball was superior to that of the aspect of Cyric that the Bainites worshipped in place of the now-dead Bane. They believed Cyric was simply a new name and an identity that Ball had adopted. Eventually, the purges carried out by the Syracists stifled any of these disagreements, though there was still some murmurings of discontent about this change. Sometime after Ball was killed, a Ball spawn by the name of Abdel de Adrian would go on to defeat and kill those who sought to use his unholy ancestry for their own goals, as well as other Ball spawn, or so it was thought. Either way, Abdul rejected his evil origins and rights, disallowing Ball to be reborn and establishing himself as a hero in Duke of Baldur's Gate. That was until 1482 Dale Reckoning, when the other remaining Ball spawn, 
Vikang sought out Abdul. Due to their divine ancestry, their lifespans as mortals, as mortal humans, had been prolonged significantly. Vikang and Abdul both did battle out in the streets of Baldur's Gate. One of the two was killed, and the rest of Baal's essence surged through the last survivor, and a monstrosity emerged. This monstrosity killed many in Baldur's Gate before being destroyed itself. But by killing the last Ball spawn in the form of this monstrosity, simply known as the Ball spawn Slayer, Ball ended up being reborn in the Outer Plains. Following that, Baldur's Gate was beset by many murders, eventually revealing one of the city dukes to be the Chosen of Ball. This Chosen was put down, but it was now clear to all that Ball's plans to be reborn had been successful. Sometime after 1482 Dale Reckoning, there was this, a decision on the part of the Dead Three to not go along with the Divine Edict set out by Eo, and all three of them abdicated their positions in the Outer Plains to come down into the Prime Material and walk amongst the mortals as demigods. I'm going to echo what I have said before in both the Mercule and Bane episodes once more. I'm not surprised if folks are hearing this for the first time, since it is not written or brought up at all in Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. What is the Dead Three's real intentions while down on the Prime Material? It, may be, it might be setting up a future plotline that will be explored in a later module or video game set down on the Forgotten Realms. At least, that's what I'm assuming. Personality Ball is a former intermediate-level deity who is now a demigod. Ball was formerly listed as a lawful evil deity in 3rd edition sources and back. Now in 5th edition, Ball was given a neutral evil alignment in Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. But in referring to the Baldur's Gate descent into the Furnace module, he is described as a chaotic evil power. Do I think a chaotic evil alignment suits Ball? Perhaps depending on how you view his personality. But this shift seems far too soon after being given a neutral evil alignment and without any real justification, unless this was a simple mistake by one of the writers. Continuing on though, there are two sides to Ball's personality. One half of Ball is cold and calculating. This half takes satisfaction in the fear that his name invokes. The other half has a violent disposition, one that is fed by a bloodlust to hunt and kill his targets all the while taking satisfaction in the cruelty he commits and in the novel ways he can kill his targets. Personal Realms While Baal was a deity residing on the Outer Plains, his realm of the Throne of Blood could be found on the first layer of the Plain of Gehenna, on its first layer of Kallus. Gehenna is the shared lawful evil and neutral evil plane that resides in between the Nine Hells of Beator and the Grey Wastes of Hades. Gehenna is almost laid out in a very similar fashion to that of Mount Celestia, where each of the four great volcanoes that make up this plane serve as layers unto themselves. What is different is that the slopes of these four steep volcanoes are finite and measurable, but that might be the only reassuring thing about Gehenna. Each massive volcano is referred to as a furnace, and Gehenna itself is known as the Fourfold Furnaces for that very reason, though it is also known as the Oven of Perdition. Surrounding the jagged slopes is nothing but a black void that leads to places unknown 
and woe betide the individual who tumbles down into the dark. Up above the sky that separates each layer is another black void itself, save a small amount of light that might pass through from the volcanic activity occurring up above. The only source of light on the plane is the roiling and spewing magma and red-hot stones that produce a cycle of light across the plane as certain areas are bright with volcanic activity, while others have cooled off and darkened completely. Small little volcanic islands float in the air and occasionally smash into the sides of the main volcanoes. Callus, the first and bottommost layer, is the most hospitable, if such a term could be used to describe any of these four layers. It echoes mountainous terrain native to the prime material, where water flows along its sides, though no plant life grows. The waters here are poisonous with their high metallic content from the lava and what other sorts of malignant elements are in it issuing forth from such a maligned place. Those who drink the water are said to suffer from a wasting disease that sheds skin from limbs and leaves the disease crippled and deformed. The river Styx flows through the first layer, winding its way through Callus's many gorges and crevices. The petitioners and creatures found in Gehenna are evil, guided by some degree of law, but still acting out selfishly, taking advantage of those that they can for profit. The play itself seems to embody this mindset, as the train here almost has a mind of its own. Untimely avalanches cascading down its hills or large cracks opening up to pour hot lava over the vulnerable suddenly. The terrain also doesn't take too kindly to anyone manipulating it physically or magically to be level. Invariably, the terrain will then later shift and reinstate its desired need to be steep and sloped. Referring to 5th edition sources, Gehenna is a plane of origin for the Yugoloths. This is where they were first created, and this is where they are reformed if they are killed away from this plane. Looking over the Planescape lore from 2nd edition, the writers keep the Yugoloth's origins hazy, saying that they were birthed on Hades. Given that they were created from night hags, that myth definitely has some merit. Still, if we're going by 5th edition canon, it seems rather cut and dry. This plane does see its fair share of blood war activity as well, but given how close it is, cosmologically speaking, to the Nine Hells, the devils seem to have the upper hand here. I found no source to describe Ball's realm of the Throne of Blood. While that is frustrating, it does leave us with a blank slate to work with and craft our very own. In the World Tree Cosmological Model for 3rd Edition, the Throne of Blood is made mention of in the 3rd Edition source as one of the handful of personal realms of dead gods whose realms seem to have vanished upon their death. What plane ball would be in or on is best left to a guess for this cosmology. If I was to take a stab at making a guess, I'd say Ball's realm would more than likely be on the Barons of Doom and Despair with Bane, or perhaps out, out, out on the Blood Rift. For the World Axis Cosmological Model seen in 4th edition, no sources really make any mention that any possible ties Ball would have with this cosmological model. Allies and Allegiances As we have discussed in recent episodes, Bane is regarded as the decision maker between the Debt Three. 
but Mercule seems to have had a mutual understanding that they shared similar goals, all the while operating on a similar deific power level. Ball, however, is described to have seen Bane as a superior to him. Some other illicit allies of Ball include the Doomed One, Loviatar, Talona, and Mask. It is likely that Mask would no longer be an ally to an evil power such as Ball, given Mask's shift from earlier editions as a chaotic evil power to one that is now chaotic neutral. Before the Time of Troubles, Talona and Loviatar served Ball, though given the discrepancy in power that now exists, that is almost indefinitely no longer the case. Though there might be some unsaid sort of alliance as much as evil powers can ever truly be said to be allied. Enemies Ball's biggest adversaries include Shantia, Helm, Lathander, Torm, Tyr, Ilmater, and Lyra. Avatar and Deity Stat Blocks The breakdown for Ball's avatars can be found in the second edition source book, Face and Avatars. The breakdown of Ball's avatar when it was less powerful during the Time of Troubles can be found in the second edition adventure module, Waterdeep. Symbols Ball's symbol is likely one of the most popular deific symbols from the Forgotten Realms. It consists of a white skull facing forward that is encircled by blood drops, orbiting in a counterclockwise direction. Central Dogma From Ed Greenwood Presents Elminster's Guide to the Forgotten Realms, a 4th edition supplement. Quote, Murder is natural. Slaying is what all creatures in Faerun do, daily if they can. At least daily, slay something living. And the lord of murder is most pleased if the victim is one of your own kind, and as formidable as, or more powerful than, you. Kill with swift skill. Not by torture, forced suicide, falls, or collisions. Do it personally, with ever greater deftness and elegance, and teach others the skills and the delights of slaying. Deathbringers are to slay with enough skill that witnesses are impressed. They are always to challenge those more powerful than themselves, the clergy of other deities being prized targets. Slay with pleasure, but never with anger. Be in exquisite control of yourself. Utter the name of Baal so the victim can hear it. Ideally, it should be the last word a victim hears. End quote. Presence of the Faith By and large, and unsurprisingly, the one occupation that venerates Baal most are assassins. He still does find worship among brutish and violent warriors as well. This often includes bounty hunters and mercenaries. Though he is not a deity who has ever really been worshipped in large numbers. Most people fear the bloodlust that is attributed to him and swear at him off for the evil he represents. However, it is known that those looking to commit murder for whatever reason will turn towards Baal, invoking his name. The city of Baldur's Gate has become entangled with Baal. Several key elements surrounding him and his Baal spawn have taken place within the confines of this city. What's more, it is said that he along with his other two Dark Three members are said to have been seen walking the dirt streets ever since they abdicated their positions as powers in the Outer Plains. 
This has done nothing but increase the number of violent crimes and deaths throughout the city. Even with Ball back in the fold, still rumors flit about the city saying one political figure or another are in actuality a Ball spawn. Worship of the Dead 3 isn't necessarily illegal here either, so long as worshippers don't participate in any criminal activities. Given the tenets of all three of these powers, they almost certainly, even if it hasn't been seen by the authorities, are involved in evil criminal activities. Hierarchy and Structure of the Clergy Collectively, Baal's clergy are known as Deathbringers, a term given to those to the west of the Dragon Reach ford in the Sea of Fallen Stars is Baalus, while those to the east are known as Baalin. For the sake of simplicity in this episode, I have simply just used the term Baalus, but no, there is a distinction canonically. Unsurprisingly, Baal's faith is not one that is well organized. Instead, the various insular cells resemble cults when they spring up more often than not revolving themselves around a single, influential Baalist clergy member. These individual sects have their own internal hierarchy separate from those in other regions. A division between rural and urban Baalists has always been present. Before the Time of Troubles, the relations between these two groups was aloof, but peaceful enough. After the Time of Troubles, the urban Baalists almost entirely adopted Sirik as their new patron. Rural sects held out for a long time, but eventually they stopped receiving their divine powers. So in turn, some converted to Sirik's worship, or found new patron deities among evil non-human deities to go along with their continued worship of Baal. The following clergy hierarchy is from 2nd edition sources, so it might be outdated, though feel free to use it. A regional sect of Baalist clergy is led by the High Primate, if male, or High Prime Mistress, if female. Each temple leader was then given the rank of Primate, if male, or Prime Mistress, if female. Personal assistants are assigned to each Primate or Prime Mistress, and they are given the title of First Murder. Beneath the first murder are specifically nine clergy members who held the rank of Cal Death, who are all senior clergy members. The common clergy beneath the deaths were the death dealers, who each referred to one another with the honorific of slaying hand. As mentioned both in the Bane and Mercule episodes, I interpret the use of the word cult to describe the Death Three's worship in present-day Baldur's Gate to only reflect their respective three cults within the kind confines of the city. The Ballas cult in Baldur's Gate makes use of the following three ranks in ascending order. Nightblades, Reapers, and Death's Heads. Responsibilities and Duties of Clergy and Worshippers. Murder is a duty in the Ballist faith. Through each murder is said that Ball grows stronger. It is expected that they murder someone at least once every ten days. For each time they miss this quota, they must murder twice as much during the next period. Every Ballist must ensure that their victims know and understand that they are being killed in Ball's name. Clergy are to pursue their own goals and pastimes, but their chief responsibility is prepping themselves for the next murder. Whether this be through identifying a target, weapons maintenance, training themselves in the different ways of assassination and murder, etc., etc., Planning is to be thorough and targets are not to be selected indiscriminately. 
Eliminating opponents to the faith is certainly important, but instilling a sense of fear into common people is equally important with the intent that common folk then placate the faith of Baal with offerings. The higher ranks of the clergy make sure to involve themselves in plots to manipulate the local political structure that they might find themselves in. Common folk who are worshippers of Baal are instructed to pray to Baal before venturing forth onto any journey or into any dangerous task, so that the lord of murder might protect them. They are also to pray when offering gold to Baal's clergy or when news of a violent death reaches their ears. Any coin obtained from a victim is expected to be split evenly between the clergy member and the faith. A deathbringer is assigned to a senior clergy member to serve as their go-to when splitting their ill-gotten gains. Though there is no true consensus of what is expected when the clergy member obtains goods that are not coin. Orders and Priestly Bodies Especially priests of second edition known as the Deathstalkers, who held Bell as their patron deity, were part of a society known as the Brethren of the Keen Strike. The Faith of Baal sponsors many shadowy organizations of thieves and assassins in Faerun. Some of these include the Shadow Thieves of Om and the Citadel of Assassins found in the Galena Mountains. Although unnamed, there are said to be assassin guilds established bearing Baal's namesake in Faerun. More than just rogues, these guilds often include other classes that carry out assassinations. It is said that in the second edition era that these guilds pay homage to both Baal and Sirik given Sirik absorbed Paul Ball's former portfolio. It may be that now, since Ball is reborn, they have stopped being, paying homage to Sirik, or there is a more equitable distribution of those who worship either of the two gods. Appearance and Dress The ceremonial dress of the clergy of Ball consists of a ceremonial robe and cowl, all a deep purple or black color, with violet streaks running through these vestments in random directions. The insides of these robes are lined with black material. A black veil is also worn over the face to ensure the observer cannot see the clergy member's face. High-ranking clergy members may wear a red sash around their vestments to be easily recognized, save when conducting ceremony or rituals in dimly lit environs. Curved ceremonial daggers are worn on the hip of each clergy member. Typically, though, only high-ranking clergy members use them in their murders outside the temple. Common clergy tend to use their own weaponry and reserve the curb daggers purely for ceremony. While adventuring, clergy members are allowed to wear the best armor that they can afford and wear proficiently. They accompany such armor with black capes, cloaks, and leggings. Rituals By and large, the most important ritual in the Faith of Ball is the act of committing murder. As was mentioned before, it is key to this ritual that the victim knows that they are being killed in Baal's name. Specifically, the clergy member is to recite, quote, Baal awaits thee, Baal embraces thee, none escape Baal, end quote. Afterwards, using the blood of the victim, the clergy member then needs to draw the symbol of Baal beside the corpse. They then smear the victim's blood on their hands. If this ritual is done properly, the blood on their hands vanishes. Prayers to Baal are made by clergy members before going to sleep. Collectively, clergy inside a temple do this together in a ceremony known as the Day's Farewell. Prayers are also made before clergy members are to go out and commit murder. 
Although only mentioned recently in a 5th edition source, Baalists cut open their thumbs and draw blood while making prayers to Baal. The marks from repeated cuttings on the thumbs both serve as an identifier among Baalists and those who in turn hunt them. After being promoted in the faith, the clergy member is to go out, seek a target, and kill the target with their bare hands without the aid of weapons. A senior clergy member then is briefed about the events that transpired. Should the senior clergy member believe and divine that the promoted clergy member speaks truly, then the new rank is awarded to the promoted in a formal ceremony in full ceremonial dress. A living sacrifice is to be carried out during this ceremony. Senior clergy members high up in the Baalist hierarchy are said to be able to determine with a large amount of accuracy whether the promoted individual is stretching the truth or full-on lying. It is not advised to do any sort of lying, given that the punishment for not being honest is quite severe. Though it does not read like they kill as a form of punishment, I can only imagine what it would be Ballas would do as a form of punishment. The only static holiday on the calendar of Harptos for the faith of Baal occurs on the Feast of the Moon. This is the day that lies in between the months of Uktar and Nightal. This holy day is not given a name, but is a day set aside to tell stories of the murderous deeds committed by the faith over the centuries. One of the most recounted stories is about Uthadol, the blood-drenched who slew King Samite of Tathir. If you're interested, this tale is recounted in the second edition supplement of Face and Avatars. In Baldur's Gate Descendant to Avernus, there is mention of Baal worshippers bathing in human blood inside a sarcophagus. To what end this evil ritual serves is unknown. General Locations of Places of Worship Given that Baal's clergy are a rare occurrence on Faerun, Baal's places of worship would seem to be even rarer. Part of this has to do with the conversion of temples to the worship of Sirik following the Time of Troubles. Nearly every temple of the faith was converted with a small amount of holdouts. As mentioned before, these holdouts were far more common in the rural sects of Baal. Any shrine that is found is typically one raised by someone given thanks to Baal upon a successful murder. These shrines, gruesomely, usually consist of the skull or severed head of the victim surrounded by drops of their blood. This is clearly alluding to the design of Baal's unholy symbol. Rural shrines are found atop hilltops, where a blood-stained sacrificial altar has been placed. Commonly, a ring of stones carved into the likeness of a teardrop-shaped skull are placed in the ground around the altar. Citadels often double as places of worship and residence for the assassins of Baal. Urban temples, though, are usually found beneath street level. They are dark and spartan temples with only the bare necessities, though often some piece of art is to be found depicting a gruesome murder. Small chambers here contain items and other tokens taken from those killed by the hands of Baal worshippers and clergy. Other chambers serve as crypts to store bodies that could not be left at the murder scene and had to be hidden away. Many of these corpses are restless. Specific Places of Worship Murder Hall may be considered a holy site, but it is definitely not identified to have been established as a temple or any sort of place of worship. This former citadel, transformed into a death trap dungeon, 
served as a de- deadly trap vault for the boss. It is housed in a castle outside of Tashluta. Within it, the boss secured a holy Gondish relic known as the Argir that they had stolen. Several Gondish worshippers attempted the trap vault, only to kill themselves in droves. Eventually, an unaligned adventuring group came, killed all the boss, and stole away with the treasures inside. Borescu Bridge is the fateful place where Sirik slew Ball, wielding Godsbane. Godsbane is masked in his inanimate avatar form. At each end of the bridge are raised statues both depicting Ball and Sirik. At one time, the statues were taken down by worshippers of Mistra. But fearing some sort of backlash, merchants who frequently used the bridge pooled their funds together and had the statues put back up in place. The winding ways water still run black south from the bridge, having absorbed part of Ball's essence after his death. Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide says that pilgrims come to Boreskir Bridge, but for which faith I am unsure. It is likely a site for both Ball's and Cirrus's. Regardless, the site is watched over by paladins stationed at the nearby Fort Tamal. The winding waters, waters here are still black in color, having absorbed Ball's essence all those years ago. The black water eventually begins to subside miles west of Trollclaw Ford. The locals refuse to drink this water and call it Ball Water. The ill effects of the water vary from edition from edition. Some say it is to be treated as poison if ingested, while others say it bestows a curse for a day. Ball's faith is relatively small in Baldur's Gate alongside that of his other Dead Three companions. For now, though, the clergy of the Dead Three are a threat in Baldur's Gates, but not significantly enough to disrupt the city. As mentioned earlier, though, Ball has a lot of history in Baldur's Gate. It may be that his faith out of the all three might grow to become the strongest here. It is rumored that a temple to Ball exists somewhere secreted beneath the city of Baldur's Gate. It might be in the sewers. It might be in an ancient underground chamber, while some think it is attached to Dust Hawk Hill. The story goes that 11 red crystals that are embedded into this temple's wall get brighter and brighter with every murder committed in Baldur's Gate. This accumulating power may yet serve to serve benefit Ball himself, or one of his more powerful minions in the days to come. Ball was rather popular among the elite of Thay before the Time of Troubles. Each city in Thay once held an assassin's guild hall that doubled as a temple to Ball. A large temple to Ball in particular could be found in Eltabar. Though following Ball's death and Sirik co-opting the portfolio of death, Ball's temples in Thay easily became Sirius's temples. Is there room for a new resurgent of Ball's faith in Thay now that Ball is reborn? I certainly think so. The Temple of Filth and Neverwinter once was a temple split between the worship of Baal and Mercule. Now the religious icons have been destroyed or hidden away by those who worship Orcus. A shrine to Baal can be found in Undermountain beneath Waterdeep. Character Options In the second edition sourcebook, Faiths and Avatars, you can find the breakdown for the Deathstalker, those specially priests who hold Baal as their patron deity. The following is a breakdown of the features that I think someone deeply involved in Ball's faith as an acolyte or otherwise would have for their background in 5th edition. For your two skill proficiencies, I would take two of the following three. Deception, Sleight of Hand, and or Stealth. 
for your language or tool proficiencies, I would take two tool proficiencies, one in the Poisoner's Kit, one with the Disguise Kit. For your equipment, you could take the Acolytes from the Player's Handbook, the Criminals from the Player's Handbook, using some of that 15 gold pieces for a Holy Symbol, uh, the Faceless from Descent into Vernus, again, use the gold for the Holy Symbol, or you could make use of the Urban Bounty Hunter's Equipment, leaving gold set aside for a Holy Symbol. For your ribbon feature attached to the background, I would take either the Shelter of the Faith Roll from the Player's Handbook, uh, Dual Personalities from Sent into Avernus, or the Urban Bounty Hunter's Ear to the Ground feature from Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide. These are just a list of subclasses I think would be thematically appropriate for MBC or PC to take if they are a worshipper of Ball. For the Barbarian, I could see someone taking the path of the Berserker, who is driven by Bloodlust from the Player's Handbook, as well making use of the Zealot, who is a recurring power of evil from Xanthar's Guide to Everything. For the Bard, there's the College of Whispers Bard from Xanthar's Guide to Everything. For the Cleric, there's the Death Domain from the Dungeon Master's Guide. You might be able to push for the Trickery Domain from the Player's Handbook as well. For the Fighter, Fighter subclasses are generic enough to fit into whatever narrative you're trying to tell, though some do stand out as subclasses that would f- not fit with boss tenants. For the Monk, there's the Way of the Shadow Monk from the Player's Handbook. For the Paladin, you could reflavor the Val- Vengeance Paladin in my mind to be evil. For the Ranger, there's the Hunter from the Player's Handbook, and Monster Slayer from Xanathar's Guide to Everything. For the Rogue, the Assassin from the Player's Handbook is by far the subclass immediately thought of for Ballas. The other rogue subclasses in 5th edition could just as well be capable assassins, though not identified as such with their subclass. Finally, for the Sorcerer, there's the Divine Soul Sorcerer and the Shadow Sorcerer, both from Xanathar's Guide to Everything. Dungeon Master Options Much like I said with Mercule in the last episode, I could name off close to all the various undead creatures and official 5th edition sources. That would be boring and time-consuming. So instead, a good shorthand to use is that if a monster's type is undead, it's more than likely fitting for the faith of Ball or Ball himself. So instead, I'm just going to point out a few creatures that are not undead that you could also make use of. For the monster manual, there's the Hellhound, the Nightmare, Grell, Ropers, Carrion Crawlers, and Dark Mantles. For Volo's Guide to Monsters, there's the Slithering Tracker. From the Mordenkind's Tome of Foes, there's the Steel Predator. Next, I will talk about monsters found from non-5th edition sources. Kasbaroth the Beast was used as a minion of Baal, who caused much destruction and damage in the Moonshade Isles over the centuries. Kasbaroth has also served Malar in the past as well. The stat block for this creature can be found in the 2nd edition supplement, Villain's Lore Book. Harla are invisible creatures which embody a singular emotion. They prey upon individuals who display their given emotion, placing the individual in such a strong emotional state to act uncontrollably and without any recollection of events that transpire for a short time. Harla of hate in particular drive the targets into an uncontrollable fit of rage, causing the target to be violent and even go so far as to killing those around them. Harla of hate 
and the entry for Harla in general are found in the second edition Bestiary Monstrous Compendium 11. Next, we'll touch on humanoid stat blocks from 5th edition sources that can be used to represent various ball worshippers and clergy. Keep in mind with the spellcasters, you can always swap out their listed spells for other spells more fitting to themes that you're trying to get at. For the monster, from the monster manual, there's the acolyte, the priest, the assassin, and the spy. Finally, from Baldur's Gate Descendants of Vernus, there are stat blocks specific to worshippers of Baal. These would include the Death's Head of Baal, the Nightblade, and Reaper of Baal. Now it's time to talk about magic items. When I covered Bane, I discussed how it was written down in legend that he wielded a Jathamin dagger, how he plunged that dagger into Borum of the Boiling Lake's heart, and how it's still stuck in their heart, and it was buried out in the Moon Sea region. It is alluded to, but not outright stated, that Baal himself had a Jathamin dagger. The description given to the dagger he stuck in the back of Hask is very similar to that of a Jathamin dagger. It is important to note that in the 3rd edition sourcebook Faith and Pantheons, the capabilities of a Jathamin dagger do not mention drawing in the deific powers of a deity as one of its given abilities. But, though it is unstated, it may be that if the blade of a Jathamin dagger is sunk into the heart of a deity, the deific essence of that entity can be absorbed by the wielder. I say this only because Bane clearly pierced Borm's heart, and Ball pierced Hask's heart as well. In the section that describes Murder Hall in Prayers of the Faithful, there is a brief mention of a Ballist holy relic known as the Wandering Knife, a weapon that Ball himself is said to have used in the past, its current whereabouts unknown. Regardless, if a DM wanted to make the Wandering Knife a Jathamin Dagger, they can find its breakdown in the 3rd edition source book, Face and Pantheons. While Baal was attempting to take over the Moonshays, the heart of Kazgroth seemed to have served as a direct conduit for his powers and a means of direct communication between himself and his followers. The cleric who possessed it at the time could cast more spells than a normal cleric typically, typically could in a given day, and the heart also allowed for a very powerful animate dead spell to be cast, raising an army of the undead to carry out Baal's wishes. The Heart of Kazgaroth's description can be found in the Villain's Lore Book 2nd Edition Sourcebook. It should go without saying that the weapon favored most by Ball's faith is the dagger. The following are just some of the thematically appropriate magic items from official 5th edition sources that I feel the faith of Ball may have access to. From the Dungeon Master's Guide, there's the Arrow of Slaying, Cloak of Arachnida, Boots and Cloak of Elvenkind, though would have to be reflavored, Cloak of Invisibility, Cloak of the Bat, Dagger of Venom, Dust of Disappearance, Gloves of Thievery, Goggles of Night, Hat of Disguise, Nine Live Stealer, Oil of Sharpness, Potion of Gaseous Form, Potion of Invisibility, Potion of Poison, Slippers of Spider Climbing, Sword of Life Stealing, Sword of Wounding, Vicious Weapon, and anywhere from your plus one to your plus three daggers. From Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, you can make a reflavored Demir Guild Signet and Rakdos Right Knife. From Storm King's Thunder, you can reflavor the Bloodstone. From Eberron, Rising from the Last War, Living Gloves. From Princes of the Apocalypse, there's the Secret Art. From Waterdeep, Dragon Heist. 
There's the Bracer of Flying Daggers. From Curse of Strahd, there's the Blood Spear. From Tomb of Annihilation, there's Bookmark, the Magic Dagger. Finally, from Xanthar's Guide to Everything, there's the Boots of False Tracks. Alright, thank you for listening to Religion in the Realms. If you are interested in keeping up with the release of future episodes, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and follow the podcast Twitter account at Realms Religion. These episodes are also uploaded to YouTube as well. The podcast YouTube channel can be found under the title of Religion in the Realms. Audio versions of the podcast can also be found on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play Podcasts. If you wish to get in touch with me with any questions or just want to chat, my personal Twitter is at ShivsEmbrace, or you can send me an email to realmsreligion at gmail.com, all in lowercase. For those interested, I have posted a link in the video description to a Discord server I have set up. For audio listeners, you can find the link to the invite pinned on the podcast Twitter page. For the next two episodes, I will be covering the rest of the Lawful Good Deities of the Triad. I covered Torm some time ago, and Tyr and Amator still need to be covered. Next episode in particular will be all about Tyr, the Lawful Good Deity of Justice. Until next time, may time more look kindly upon your dice rolls, Helm protect you, and Lathander light your path. Music for this episode, Shadowlands 4, Breath, by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0.